In May 1861, 29-year-old Thomas Henry Carter of King William County raised an artillery battery and joined the Confederate Army. Over the next four years, he rose steadily in rank, finishing as colonel and becoming one of the senior artillerists in the Army of Northern Virginia. During the war, Carter wrote more than 100 revealing letters to his wife, Susan, about his service. His prominent colleagues, men like Robert E. Lee, who was also a kinsman of Carter's, Jubal Early, and John Gordon, come to life in Carter's astute comments about their conduct and their personalities. He chronicles a number of military operations he was involved in, including the Battle of Battles of Antietam and Spotsylvania Courthouse, and the 1864 Shenandoah Valley Campaign. In addition to Carter's observations about the war and military life, his letters to Susan include revealing uh, notes about the home front and the debate over the impressment and arming of slaves at the end of the war. Carter's letters are particularly interesting because his writing is not overly burdened by the rhetoric of the Southern ruling class. They're very frank and revealing. Graham Dozier, as he is known here at the VHS, but Ham, I would bet to many of you in the room, family and friends, grew up in Richmond and is a graduate of collegiate school. He received a BA cum laude from Hampton Sydney College and masters in history and library science from Virginia Tech and the Catholic University of America, respectively. Now Graham first arrived at the VHS in 1994 as an intern. He must have liked this place a little bit because he hasn't left since. Now, I was thinking about this, and in the 183 years that the society has been in existence, I don't know if anyone has held more different jobs here than has Graham. I mentioned he was an intern, then he was a library clerk before becoming in order, a project archivist, research assistant, assistant editor, and now managing editor of publications. Well, the project he's going to talk to us uh, today about has been a labor of love for Graham, it's occupied weekends, evenings, and spare time for the past seven years. I guess it's a good thing that his beloved New York Giants have had a couple of down years, <laughs> and he's had a lot of time in December and January to get work done on this book. Sorry, I just had to, I had to do that. Now, you might not know it, but Graham is in charge of scheduling these banner lectures. So when he told me that UNC Press would be publishing the Carter book in the fall, I immediately told him he needed to sign himself up to deliver a lecture. Now, I will say he was a little hesitant to do this. He doesn't like to blow his own horn, but uh, he likes to be behind the scenes. But I hope that by seeing all of you here, his friends, his family, interested members of the public, his colleagues here on staff, that he'll realize that I had a really good idea. And Graham, we're all very proud of you. So please join me in a very warm welcome to one of our own, Graham Dozier, who will speak to us on a gunner in Lee's army, the Civil War letters of Thomas Henry Carter to his wife. Thank you all so much for coming out and braving the war-torn Kensington Avenue. <laughs> and it's a wonder I'm still working here after all those years. But <clears throat> anyway, what I want to do for you all today is a little different, I think, than what you normally would hear at a banner lecture, which is a straightforward 
telling of a biography or a, an event that someone's written about, I thought since it's a collection of letters that I edited, you might be interested in kind of the process that I went through in putting this together as much as anything. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about Tom Carter himself, give you a sense of who he was. And if there's time, if I haven't gone on too much, share some of those wonderful observations that Paul mentioned that he had about his fellow Confederate leaders. But before I begin, I do need to thank a few folks who are here today. Fielding Williams and Ida Martin and Susan Rach, who are uh, Fielding and Susan are brother and sister, and uh, Ida is their cousin. Their great-grandfather was Tom Carter, and it was through their efforts that the letters came here in, I think it was 1995, somewhere in there. And Susan's son, Jim Terrell, who is an Episcopal priest in Sewanee, was, going to, was working on this project initially and did a wonderful transcription that I was able to use and uh, saved me a ton of keystrokes and other things that I had to, that otherwise this project would have been 10 years in the making probably. So if we could give them a great round of applause. I would appreciate it. <laughs> now, how did I come to this project to begin with? Uh, as Paul mentioned, I came here in uh, full-time in 95, and in a year later, I was hired to compile a guide to our Civil War manuscripts here in the Society. And one of the things that, one of the first things I did was catalog this wonderful collection, Thomas Henry Carter papers. And it, I was immediately struck at the time by the content of the letters. Uh, and I was a little frustrated because I knew someone, a family member was working on them at the time to do what I ended up doing. But fortunately, several years later in 2007, um, because of work commitments and the job of being an Episcopal priest, Jim Terrell uh, decided to stop working on the project. And that's when Fielding Williams approached my, my boss, Nelson Langford, who very kindly recommended me as the person who could take up the project. And I thank him for that. And, oh, and on weekends, because I do have a day job here, uh, I would come in on Saturdays the Saturday crews were very used to seeing me sitting in the back corner and doing all sorts of checking the transcription and looking up names and doing all sorts of research. And seven years later, uh, when I had finished it, thanks to Professor Gary Gallagher at the University of Virginia, he encouraged me to approach UNC Press, uh, which I did, and he was a series editor there of the Civil War America series. And through his efforts, I was able to, to get him published. They, uh, they were very helpful, and I think they did a beautiful job on the book. My intention from the start uh, was to present the reader, be they a scholar or just a general reader, with as accurate and complete a version of the letters as possible so that they could use them to, uh, to cite in other works and just so you know that you're getting the accurate and the best version possible. Now that's easy when you have these beautiful letters. You know, he had very nice handwriting for the most part. He's a very well-educated man, so it's, they're clear and easy to read. But there are a number of these in the collection as well. <laughs> Cross-writing is what I call this. I know there are very many names for it. But you can imagine what that's like to read 
you just stare at it. You read across the page as you would normally. And then you do this. <laughs> and if you really concentrate, the, the, the right lines come out and are clear. But that was something that thankfully, uh, as I said, Jim Terrell and his transcription was able to turn that into that, you know. And I think on this image, you can notice that there are some bracketed things here and there. That's things that were inserted that would make things clear for the reader, commas and question marks or punctuation mark, anything specific that doesn't change the, the, uh, the sentence at all, just makes it a little more readable. And because it's in brackets, if you remove it, you get the original, you know exactly what Tom Carter was writing at the time. This is an image basically of the transcription spread out a little bit. And what you see here are my little marks that these are the people, places, and events that I was going to basically write a footnote identifying. Because I think that's what helps us understand the context of Tom Carter's life, helps you really get to the meat of the letters and understand what he was telling his wife. And this was the fun part. I mean, this whole annotation section, using sources as diverse as newspapers and compiled service records, which any of you who've done any kind of genealogical work are wonderful sources for Civil War soldiers, and now they're online in so many ways. And they are pulled from muster rolls, and this is an inspection report, and these two relate specifically to Tom Carter's record during the war. And of course, the official records, you know, which is the Bible for any Civil War research. Uh, official reports that Carter wrote, he wrote a few about the Battle of Gettysburg, for instance. And unfortunately, there are no letters uh, in the collection from that period. Um, I speculate that he saw his wife during the summer of 1863 after Gettysburg, so he didn't need to uh, write to her, obviously. And of course, many people recognize this, a page out of the 1860 census. Uh, specifically, I think down here, you've got Carter's family, and below that, his uh, man who was an overseer on their plantation. And below that is a man named James King and his family. And that's what I recorded here. This is a sample of, a, of one of my note cards, a five by seven note card. You see I've got, it's a person, it's this date of the letter, and then information relating to it and where you get the information from. And this is the front and that's the back of the same card. Most of them weren't this extensive, but I have two little containers full of these kind of cards. And again, the point was to really identify as many people, places, and events that weren't obvious, that needed a little further explanation. And this whole mess of scratch got put on this page of the book on these two, these footnotes. That's what all that boiled down to, is these simple footnotes. And that was in the first chapter alone, which covers the 1861 uh, letters, there are 180 of these footnotes. Because of course, people who are identified early don't need to be identified later, so there are fewer in later chapters. But that made for uh, a thick chapter, shall we say. Now, what I did with the book before I mentioned Tom Carter himself, 
The first chapter of the book is his biography up until 1861 and when he enlisted. Um, because people want to know where he's from. They want to know where his background and what his family was like. And at the beginning of each of the chapters that follow, which contain the letters, I decided to include um, contextual information, telling you what Carter was up to during the period described in the letters. Because as we know, unlike a diary or a journal or a post-war memoir that tells a complete story in a way that you can follow a life in, individual letters often can vary in their subject when they follow each other. They don't necessarily relate to one another or they picks up a thread three or four letters later. So I thought that context would be good. So that's what it begins the, the main chapters in the middle of the book. And then the final chapter is a post-war life. You know, what happens to him after the war up until his death? Because I didn't want to leave people hanging with his Appomattox parole and what happened to him after at that point. Thomas Henry Carter was born at Pampatyke in King William County on June 13, 1831. He was the son of Thomas Nelson Carter and Juliet Gaines Carter. He was the great-great-grandson of Robert, great-great-great-grandson of Robert King Carter. So there's that direct line of fairly illustrious, uh, illustrious uh, men and women in that, that family. His grandfather, Robert, was the younger brother of Anne Hill Carter, who of course married Robert E. Lee's father. And she named Robert for the, her brother, who died young in 1805. So it was a, that's an interesting um, family connection there. He was brought up until 1834. He only, Tom Carter only lived for three years at Pampatyke before his mother died. His father remarried shortly thereafter to a woman named Anne Willing Page, and the family moved to Clark County, the home of the Page family. And they lived in a house called Anfield up there, and that's where Carter really grew up. And he attended local schools. And in 1846, he went off to the fairly young military college in Lexington, Virginia Military Institute. He was a year younger than he should have been to get in there, but with family connections and, and I assuming a pretty good education from tutors, he was able to get in. Graduated there at eighth in his class in 1849, and then decided rather than just follow in his father's footsteps as a farmer, he wanted to become a doctor. So he traveled to UVA, went to the medical school there, graduated in 1851. But at the time, UVA's curriculum was much more, um, it wasn't clinical, it was more theoretical in nature. So for him to be a practicing physician, he decided to go off to the University of Pennsylvania, which is something his grandfather Robert had done. And he graduated there in 1852 with an MD, remained in the city for another year working at, in the smallpox ward of what was called the Blockley Hospital. So he got practical uh, education and experience there. He returned in Virginia in 1853, hoping, planning to become a doctor, to set up practice. Initially, he thought about Alexandria, but he realized that there were too many doctors for the size of the population there, so he had to look elsewhere. But in the meantime, 
his father, who was still who still owned that Pampatike in King William County, his father's overseer died sometime in early 1853, and he asked Tom to manage the plantation for him. And so that's what Carter did. He, he bypassed his career in medicine and became a, a farmer like his father in the end after all. He moved there in 1853 and it was about a, a little over a 2,200-acre plantation, a nice size uh, farm, wheat farming, so it required a lot of labor. And in the 1860 census, 119 slaves are shown as working at Pampatike. In 1855, he met Susan Elizabeth Roy at a party at nearby Cherokee, the home of the Braxton family in King William County. Uh, her uh, uncle on her mother's side was a man named James Alexander Seddon, who many of you recognize was the first, or the, sorry, the longest serving Confederate Secretary of War. So Carter had a friend in a high place, so to speak. In, 18, in November of 1855, the couple married. And their first child who survived, they had a boy named William Roy who died very young. Their first child to survive, Thomas Nelson Carter, was born in 1858. He was followed in 1860 by Juliet. In 1863, by Anne Willing, named for his stepmother. And in 1873, finally, by Spencer Leslie, who was named for the son of a wartime courier who died at Pampatike in a kind of a strange hunting accident. He was a prosperous man, Tom Carter, and worth about $60,000 of real property in 1860. And as I said, was managing a plantation with 119 slaves. He and his brother Robert, his older brother, and his father, went in on a purchase of a farm in Madison Parish, Louisiana in 1859, and they each sent some of their slaves to work that property as well. So things were going well for the Carters. They were very prosperous. And of course, Lincoln's elected in November of 1860. Things fall apart soon after. The secession crisis of the spring ends with Virginia uh, seceding in mid-April, and that's when Tom Carter like many others, enlisted in the war, in the Army, excuse me. On June 1st of that year, he officially formed the King William Artillery Battery and served as its captain. They were initially posted here in Richmond at the Baptist College uh, on Gray Street, which of course is now the University of Richmond. Carter, being a VMI graduate, was in great demand, and so he helped train other batteries that were there at the college in what was known as the Baptist College Battalion. But he commanded only the King William Artillery um, specifically. They remained in Richmond until September. Uh, the King William boys went off to join the main army in Northern Virginia uh, that September. So they did not fight in the first Battle of Bull Run. But Carter writes a lot about that battle in those first several months of his letters. Uh, he had a fascination with it, I think, with many, like many other soldiers. He remained as captain of the battery until the fall of 1862. So he saw service at Seven Pines, uh, the Seven Days Battles, and in the Maryland Campaign. They were in Richmond during 
the second Manassas campaign in August, so they missed that. D.H. General Daniel Harvey Hill was a division commander um, that, under which Carter's battery served, and he appointed Carter to be his unofficial artillery chief, basically, in October of 1862. Carter received the appropriate promotion to major uh, the day before the Battle of Fredericksburg on December uh, 12th, and in the following March, right, when the Army Northern Virginia's artillery became, uh, it was a more massive reorganization of their artillery, he was promoted again to Lieutenant Colonel. And at that time, his younger half-brother, William, took command of the King William Battery and served under Tom. Tom now was a battalion commander, so that meant several batteries reported to him. He served, fought at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, um, fought well with distinction. He served in Virginia for the rest of 1863 with Lee's army down uh, along the Rapidan River. He was promoted to colonel on April 27th of 1864 and commanded, uh, a little more tinkering was done with the artillery at that point, so he was unofficially an artillery division commander at that point. Constant fighting, as we all know, in the summer of 1864 took place, and there are kind of few and far between letters in that period, and I think that's the main reason. These men couldn't sit down to, to write when they're constantly in, in contact with the enemy. In early September of 1864, Carter replaced Jubal Early's uh, artillery chief in the Shenandoah Valley because the man had gotten sick and was on leave. Carter was wounded at the subsequent battle of 3rd Winchester in the foot. It wasn't uh, too serious. He was only out of the army for about a week or two. And then he was nearly captured at the disastrous battle of Cedar Creek in October and remained with Early, uh, Jubal Early, in the valley until coming back to Richmond in February of 65. He commanded artillery again in the lines east of Richmond near Chaffin's Bluff up until April 2nd, 1865, when he joined Lee's army in retreat. And on the morning of April 9th, he was to command artillery in the final attack, or they didn't know it was a final attack, but that was the plan, was to push through Union forces there on the western side of Appomattox Courthouse. But that attack was called off and Lee met with Grant and surrendered the army later in the afternoon. Now, Carter was paroled as, with the rest of his men on April 12, 1865, and returned home at that point. And here's a wonderful image of him, I think probably the closest to what he would have looked like during the war. Don't know exactly when it was taken, but in the immediate post-war years. <coughs> he returns home to a farm that's seen better days. It was uh, run over by both Union and Confederate troops several times during the, the war. And he and his wife, of course, were now faced with having to pay for the labor that they had owned previously, so they had to supplement their income. The wheat farming was very prosperous, but there was still a lot to make up. So they started a small school on the property called the Pampatike Academy. It was set up for local students uh, in the area, and people from Richmond sent their kids as well. 
And here's Pampatike itself. And a former student later described Pampatike as a jumble of frame structures built at different periods and without pretense to, architect to architectural design or beauty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've seen worse, I think. Um, 1877, in May of 1877, Carter was appointed by friends from the old army in the Virginia legislature to be the first railroad commissioner of the state of Virginia to help bring coordination among the many different companies that were building and rebuilding tracks throughout the, the, the Commonwealth. He rented a room in Richmond during the week and would travel home on the weekends. Uh, and Susan, even though Carter's name was on the advertisements for the school, Susan Carter really ran the, the operation. Uh, many students commented about her after the war, uh, I mean, after when they grew up having gone to Pampatike as young boys. Now, unfortunately, Carter's tenure didn't last very long. Uh, in 1879, the readjuster party came to power in Virginia, and all the old guard were tossed out of their jobs, including Carter. But he was saved by the Southern Railway and Steamship Association. In 1881, he was appointed as an arbitrator for that organization, which met in Atlanta. Carter still remained in Virginia, but he would travel to various cities throughout the South to help arbitrate in cases that were argued in front of him. He was made eventually commissioner of that organization, and he and Susan ended up moving to Atlanta for a while. But that position was also abolished. You can sense a pattern here, I guess. Um, and he went back to just being an arbitrator for the association, at that point living in Washington. So he kind of bounced around after the war. It was his longest career. It was about a 16-year period that he worked for the Southern Railway and Steamship Association. Finally, here's, here's an image of Carter, by the way, in, in two different images of him during his tenure with the Railroad Association. This is in 1889, specifically. Finally, Carter ended up at his old alma mater at UVA, as you can see here on the lawn. And there he is there with Susan next to him. And these are students who I believe maybe lived in the, in the house with him. They were referred to as Colonel Carter's cults. <laughs> he was a proctor of the University of Virginia primary responsible for overseeing the buildings and grounds. And one of his first projects was rebuilding the rotunda, which had been damaged heavily by fire in 1895. He remained in this position, uh, during which time they also hired the very first president of the university, Edward Alderman. And Woodrow Wilson was one of the applicants for the job, but apparently he turned them down. Um, in 1905, Tom Carter suffered a serious stroke uh, that forced him to resign his position. And he moved to Roman Coke in King William County, the home of his daughter Juliet and her husband Robert E. Lee Jr. He died there uh, three years later on June 2nd, 1908. He was brought to Richmond uh, the next day and was uh, lying in the parlor of his son's home, which is on Franklin Street, still standing when there was a parade on July, June the 4th, I believe it was, or maybe it was the 3rd, uh, celebrating the centennial of the birth of Jefferson Davis. And as the parade marched past the house, everyone knew that Carter's body was in the house and they, 
they were very somber and, and presented uh, respect at the time. Carter and his wife are buried at Hollywood Cemetery, uh, not far from President Circle, just down from President Circle. And this slab right here is this. These are folks who were buried initially at Pampatyke, including Carter's mother, Juliet, and his brother, Julian, who was killed during the war, and some other family members, the, the young sons of Tom, and, and they had two children that didn't survive childhood. And they were all brought in 1929 to Hollywood Cemetery together. Well, what you really want to hear are some of these interesting observations, I think. At least that's what I'm most interested in. So I thought I would share with you some of these. I think we know who this is. And let's begin with Jefferson Davis. Several months after the Battle of First Manassas, in which, again, Carter did not fight, he joined the chorus of those who believed that the Confederate Army should have immediately advanced on Washington. There was still that belief that they could have uh, beaten entirely the retreating Union Army. In October 13th of 1861, he told Susan, nothing can exceed the stupidity of not advancing after the Bull Run. All admit it now, and the blame is put on Davis's shoulders here. Politicians will ruin us forever. <clears throat> A few months later, in mid-January of 1862, he wrote, it is said that Davis has determined to take the field in the spring in command of the army. God forbid. <laughs> My opinion of him is going down like mercury in a thermometer on a cold day. The context of that statement is also, there was a lot of, obviously that was the period in which the old enlistment, the initial, the initial first year enlistment, one year enlistment of the Confederate soldiers was gonna come up and the government was trying to figure out a way to keep the soldiers in the army, otherwise it would have disintegrated. So Carter is, is just reacting to a lot of the politicians and what they're coming up with at that time. Pierre Gustave Dutton Beauregard, he was, uh, before he went out west, of course, he commanded the army with Joe Johnston at First Bull Run, so he was with the army in Virginia. In March of 1862, just before he left the army, Carter wrote, Beauregard should have the Western command. Some of his letters show a lack of common sense, but he has the wonderful talent of the French for military matters and is thoroughly versed in every department. Moreover, he is the idol of the army full of enthusiasm and energy and of dauntless courage personally and as a leader. So he had a very high opinion, I think, of Beauregard. This gentleman you may not recognize was Earl Van Dorn, again, uh, a man who served initially in Virginia and went out west. He sometimes refers to him as the Earl, not Earl, which is kind of funny. Van Dorn I like, too. He is a gentleman not profound or striking in any way. You have seen thousands equal to him in every respect, except perhaps tactics, and for aught I know, some hidden military talents which explain his success hitherto. He is very dressy and fond of reviews, rides a superb horse presented by the Texans and just received, 
His manners are pleasant. So it's kind of an interesting uh, personal observation as opposed to sticking to his, his generalship. He wrote that in November of 1861. Robert Emmett Rhodes was perhaps the man I think Carter felt uh, the most attached to. Rhodes actually was at VMI as a professor when Carter was there, uh, so he knew him from that period. And he served initially with Rhodes's brigade and eventually stayed with Rhodes when Rhodes became a division commander. So it's the man he worked with mostly throughout the war. And he always had good things to say about him. I mean, the first thing is in November of 61, Rhodes is very kind and a capital officer, as good, I believe, as any of his rank and better than nine-tenths. So he was always very positive. He didn't talk a ton about Car uh, Rhodes throughout, but Carter's wife, when she could come stay nearby, was also uh, friends with Rhodes's wife. So there was like a, almost a family connection. This is one of the strangest looking Confederate generals, I think, in, in, in around. Richard Stoddard Ewell. I must look up General Ewell. Carter wrote in October of 1861, I like him extremely. He is so honest and high-toned and intelligent. I wish Mary Lee would marry him. He is a great favorite of General Lee. That was a fascinating comment, I thought. <clears throat> but two years later in November of 63, he wrote, Ewell is so much indisposed that he has gone to Charlottesville, it is thought for a long time. The fact is, he is regarded as having virtually withdrawn from command of the Second Corps. Early now commands by virtue of seniority in rank. I hope he will do well. My only fear is he is such a hardened old sinner, but apart from this serious objection is a first-rate man. So he's, his opinion of Yule is on the decline, but he likes early. Carter's opinion of the old sinner here changed over the course of the war, however. In October of 1862, he was impressed with Jubal Early. General Early is a man of excellent sense and one of our best fighters. This he wrote after the Battle of Antietam. Two years later, however, Carter reassessed Jubal Early's generalship after the disastrous Battle of Cedar Creek, at least from a Confederate perspective, Carter wrote a long letter describing the battle and offering his reasons for Confederate defeat, or his explanations. He placed most of the blame on the Southern Army's commander. As soon as Early took immediate command after crossing the Cedar Creek, the whole affair languished and subsided into a lackadaisical failure. Early is a staunch man with courage and fortitude in disaster and has sustained himself well in retreat, but on the field he is a blank, sees nothing with the eye of a genius, is slow and do nothing in policy, and always trying to play a safe game, which is generally an unsafe one. He has sense enough, but no system and no discipline. One of the major themes I think you'll find when you read Carter's letters is are two things, discipline and leadership. I think that's obviously from his VMI background because he was very tough on his own army. And surprisingly, in 1864, 
Um, he's very complimentary of the way the Union Army is officered. You know, he says that they know how to get rid of bad generals when they, when they find them. But, and at one point he says that the Confederate Army is too democratic for its own good. He's kind of a, a tough customer. Now, another man who initially impressed Carter with his fighting abilities was General John B. Gordon. However, Carter felt that he also did not do well at the field, on the field at Cedar Creek. The, the, the letter of October 21st, uh, 1864, two days after the Battle of Cedar Creek, is a wonderful letter. It's the one with the most detail about any battle that Carter fought in. And it's filled with these wonderful observations, critical observations of the leadership and the, and the, the army. He wrote, Gordon really has military genius whether he has general capacity enough is doubtful and his administrative ability is certainly not of a high order. He lacks discipline, but he is a giant on the field, not only by his personal courage, but by that sort of instinct which teaches a leader to do the right thing at the right time and in the right manner. So he's very high on, on, on Gordon, although he's also, he's not an organized commander, which I think Gordon was a division commander, so he should have been in, in Carter's eyes. I'm not going to identify this person for you. <laughs> now, as Paul mentioned, Carter, you know, was a, a cousin of Robert E. Lee's. His father was a first cousin of Robert E. Lee's. So he's <clears throat> he likes Lee, but interestingly, his initial opinion was very much like that of the rest of the army. Uh, in early 1861, or in the fall of 1861. In that December, he wrote, I hope General Lee may accomplish something in the South. Lee was heading for South Carolina. He has lost ground in the Army. He is personally popular with the generals and officers, but regarded as too cautious by the Army and lacking in confidence in volunteers. So it's interesting because that was uh, the Union perception of Lee certainly George McClellan's perception that Lee was too cautious. Now a year later, this is right in the middle uh, of the Maryland campaign in September of 1862, Carter, like most of the men, saw Lee in a different light by that time. The straggling of the army exceeds anything ever known. Lee is taking the most stringent steps to prevent it. He has the entire confidence of the army, but there is no enthusiasm. Jackson, on the contrary, is idolized by the army and people. All along the road, he is inquired for. I found that interesting, the, 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 the contrast. And a year later, the fall in September of 1863, Carter had this to say about Lee. I have no great faith in our Corps commanders, who at that time were Richard Ewell and A.P. Hill, Jim, uh, James Longstreet was in the West fighting the Battle of Chickamauga at that time. They are both mediocre. My faith is in Providence, the troops, and General Lee. A bit different from the, the cautious commander in 1861. Well, before I, I end, I would like to mention one of the, I think, important aspects of these letters is what they say about the relationship between Carter and his wife Susan. The content of the letters 
I think, reveals that there was an incredible bond between Tom and Susan. From the first to the last, he held nothing back from her. His long descriptions of army news, incidents of camp life, battles, promotions, artillery reorganizations, the state of morale, for instance, they indicate that he was writing to someone who understood his life and, more importantly, who wanted to know everything that he was experiencing. Theirs was as much, I think, a partnership as a marriage. In March of 1863, when General D.H. Hill was leaving the Army in Northern Virginia, he asked Carter to serve with him in North Carolina as his chief of artillery. It would have been a promotion and it would have meant distinction on far less fighting. But Carter wrote to Susan about the offer, explaining it all, and he assured her that before he answered the general, he would wait to hear her opinion on the matter. And that really struck me when I, I used that at the very beginning of my introduction as kind of an opening story because it just, I think it says a lot about their relationship and how much stock he placed in, in Susan. And of course, there are the always endearing openings to the letters, my precious wife, and what he says about his children uh, at the end of the letters. He's a very, uh, he's a likable man, I think. Uh, a bit of a, a, a tough guy when it turns to, his opinion of other commanders and their, their shortcomings. But, but in conclusion, as we wrap up so we can get you back to war-torn Kensington Avenue, <laughs> whether in Richmond training his men in 1861, in winter camp in March of 1863 pondering his future, or in the Shenandoah Valley in the late fall of 1864 trying to make sense of recent defeats, Carter reveals himself to be a thoughtful observer of the people around him and of the events in which he is a witness or participant. His letters offer a unique glimpse of a profound experience from a well-educated and insightful perspective. Thank you. done. His letters are uh, almost conversational when you, when you hear them read. Uh, what was his view? Discipline you mentioned was one of the important qualities he favored. What was his view of volunteers and conscription soldiers? Um, <clears throat> he didn't really differentiate, interestingly enough. He was mostly talking about the army that existed at the time in January, February, March of 1862 when the conscription debates were going on. Um, he just kept saying they better come up with something soon, you know, we're tired of waiting. So he was very just mostly just concerned with filling the army. Interestingly, in December of 1864, he, like General Lee himself, joined those who thought that they should be arming African Americans. He was, he was kind of, he has this, this wonderful quote, and I should have brought it, but he goes after the Confederate population, basically, for not supporting the idea. They're, they're willing to let their own sons go and fight in the army and die, but the idea of 
releasing some of their servants to do this is just beyond them. And it, this really annoys me because in Carter's mind, you just do anything you can to fill the army and, and win or do what would be winning for the Confederacy. So I hope that gets somewhere near your answer. Uh, where is this uh, family uh, plantation in King William? Can you tell us by roads and say roads? Uh, it's in central, kind of central uh, King William County, down toward the Pamunkey River. They bordered the Pamunkey River because his father had reclaimed an island, had cleared it, had dammed it so he could make more property to farm. So it's, it's, um, it's hard to describe exactly where it is. There is a road called Pampatike Road that comes down off the main road, east-west road that goes through King William County. Uh, it's still, the building that I showed you burned down in the turn of the century. And I think Carter rebuilt it, but not in the same shape. And that is now an organic farm in King William County. Um, I've been trying to find it <laughs> for some reason. The road, you know, things change over time. And I don't like just driving up people's driveways, but uh, <laughs> sometimes you have to do that. Um, so that it's kind of south central, right in the middle of King William County, if that helps. How were the le letters delivered, and were there any return letters from Susan? The letters, I assume, were just handed to us in a box, right? No, no it was time. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant here. <laughs> <laughs> there was a postal service, uh, couriers and such, that, that would deliver the letters. She received them at the uh, post office, which was an old church in Hanover County, uh, directly not far from the ferry crossing where she could cross from King William County down to Hanover and pick them up. So that's how she got the letters. Um, and she did write, I have copies of I think seven letters that are from her to him during the war. But the reason I didn't include them in the book is because the imbalance. There are more than 100 letters from him to her and it just didn't make sense to, to uh, for the balance of the book. But there are very few. There are, there are a lot of post-war letters I've heard uh, of Susan's um, to him, which is strange. I guess it's when he was traveling uh, or doing his job in Richmond. So that's, an, that's my answer to that. Um, I was wondering why he never returned to the practice of medicine or why he didn't support the war effort as an army surgeon or medical professional? I wish I could tell you. <laughs> That's one of those frustrating things. He doesn't, after the initial letter where he's talking about coming back to Virginia and before the war and, and practicing in Alexandria, it never comes up again. Now during the letters he does comment on illnesses in camp from a kind of a doctor's perspective and illnesses with his horse. He was always very concerned with his, with his horses. But I can't tell you, there's, there's no explanation. Uh, he had been a farmer since 1853, so I think that proved enough of a job for him right there. Um, that's, that's all I know. There's no explicit statement. My original question was, are there any letters from Susan that survived? But you answered that. So question B, 
Did she ever have a contrary view to any of his comments? Unfortunately, her letters to him weren't, weren't as revealing in that sense. And I, what do you mean his views about what specifically? When, when he would make a comment about some general or, or officer's personality or demeanor or whatever, did Not, she ever say, I've heard contrary? Not that I've ever heard. She was most of the conversation. If you do listen to these, they're they are available on, on audio tape. The conversation is he's answering questions for her on how to manage the plantation. So there's a lot of conversation in that regard. But no, he doesn't uh, have to defend his his, his <laughs> descriptions or anything like that to her. I just wanted to thank you for, uh, for this excellent work. My, uh, my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, was a corporal in Page's Battery of Artillery, mm. which was part of uh, Carter's Battalion of Artillery. And uh, as, uh, as someone who had an ancestor in the Civil War, just an enlisted guy, uh, it certainly helped me to understand better you know, some of the things that he went through, and I, I just thought it was an excellent work, and I just wanted to thank you so much for that. Uh, and uh, Colonel Carter was, uh, was especially instrumental, I think, in me being here, because, you know, at Gettysburg, when, uh, uh, when Rhodes had placed, I think it was Rhodes or Gordon, had placed Page's battery of artillery on the forward slope, mm -hmm. and they were being uh, shelled by Dilger's uh, artillery, um, you know, Carter very quickly uh, uh, apparently sought to have them removed, and they were they were taking some very serious shelling there. So uh, uh, I just want to thank you. It was really very uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I wish I there was a quote in I don't I can't remember the source exactly, but Carter was not happy, and he went up to Rhodes and exploded about, you know, what fool put these men in this position, of course, and Rhodes just quietly said, you know, well, then remove them, Carter, you know. <laughs> it was me, but uh, I'll let that slide, you know. <clears throat> well, thank you for your comments. 